Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. My guest today is Avram Lappin, who is the president and creator of the Lappin Group, which he started after two decades as a senior partner with the EHL Consulting Group. He has provided fundraising and strategic counsel to hundreds of clients in the United States and overseas for more than 30 years. He is a recognized expert in evaluating the changing priorities and giving patterns of major individual and institutional donors. He has guided a variety of educational, healthcare, social service, cultural, and faith-based organizations to achieve their fund and leadership development objectives. He provides professional development and training seminars to volunteer and professional nonprofit leaders in the U.S. and in Israel, and speaks to international nonprofit organizations, associations, and organizational leadership teams in cities throughout the U.S. and around the globe. He's posted numerous articles and op-eds for eJewish Philanthropy, including the most recent article, Skin in the Game and the Importance of Board Giving, Overhead, Competing Against Ourselves, Will Our Capital Campaign Endanger Annual Giving? And Mission Creep, It's in the House, What Do We Do? He also publishes content for the JTA blog, as well as the Jerusalem Post, Philadelphia's Jewish Exponent, Philadelphia Business Journal, Fundraising Management, American Benefactor, and other local and national publications. I've asked Avram on the program today, as I've enjoyed a range of topics he touches upon in his eJewish Philanthropy articles, and I'm curious to hear more about his experience with his clients, as well as his insight into the challenges facing the organized Jewish community today. Welcome to the program, Avram. Thank you. Wonderful. We will begin, as we always do, with how you got into the position and the kind of work that you do today. I came by, quite honestly, I come from a history of people involved in the community. My father, God rest his soul, was the executive director of the Evil Institute in New York for a number of years. And uh, my mother has carried on his legacy as a board member and an involved leader. So I find the bridge between the world of business and the world of philanthropy and organizational work a very comfortable one, so that it's something that comes naturally. I believe very strongly that the world of philanthropy and the world of the Jewish community in particular faces a number of challenges, and those challenges are fluid, and those organizations that are able to recognize those challenges and confront them are able to succeed. Those that don't continue to face those challenges, and we've seen consolidations and we've seen organizations closing over the last 10 years that were around for a long time. We're in an interesting period right now where the economy around this is changing. The rules of engagement around philanthropy are changing. Generations are changing. So a lot of the things that were kind of tried and true over many, many decades may no longer be the case. And so when did you actually start doing consulting work? I began my consulting career in the early 1990s. I had worked initially in the Jewish Federation world. I worked for a couple of years at EJ Federation in New York in the mid-80s. And then in 1987, came to Philadelphia to be the director of leadership development. And I spent from 1987 to 1992 as the director of leadership development. And I may say, as shepherding the most successful young leadership campaign that I understand, uh, to my recollection, in Philadelphia Federation history. But that's a side note. In the early 90s, I made the transition from the institutional side to the consulting side thinking and believing. And history, I think, has borne me out somewhat that we needed to continually find solutions to the realities of the marketplace and that we couldn't necessarily keep doing things the way we always had. 
being on the consulting side enabled me to take a look at what was working, what wasn't, to understand and to see the trends in the environment and the marketplace and help organizations understand them and work within them and perhaps even work to change them, but not to do things the old way in an environment which required new thinking. So were there things that you thought you knew when you went into consulting that after how many years you've been doing it, you thought maybe differently of than you thought of when you first started doing this work? First of all, the nature of consulting itself, it's a results business. As much as you want to be able to think about the process of doing things and the nature of organizational life, it was secondary to creating an environment and creating a setting and creating a framework in which success can be achieved. And it was new to me when I made the transition, but it quickly became something which I became very comfortable doing. And 26 years later, you know, in a results business, uh, relatively good at doing. I feel that now's the time to take a look at the experience that I and my colleagues have amassed and see if we can add some wisdom, add some knowledge to the field. So I want to focus a little bit on your articles and your writings. So where does the inspiration for them come from? Is it the work that you're doing and then kind of take that? Is it just in conversations, you're hearing certain things Mm -hmm. and feel like you want to kind of bring some light onto that or some motivation for Jewish professionals in the field as to how they think about these various topics? A lot of it is related to things that we see every day that the challenges that are faced by professionals in the field and organizations in the field, not just professionals, but professionals, professional leadership, volunteer leadership, people at all places in organizational life are confronted with changes, are confronted with new ways of doing things, are confronted with new attitudes in the world of fundraising and organizational development. And in order to be able to deal with the changes, you need to think differently. And so that's what's been motivating us to try to inject a little bit of new knowledge into the way that organizations do business and that organizational leadership makes decisions. Are there any challenges that we face that have kind Mm -hmm. of been constant through the entire time that you've been doing your work where it's always a mission creep problem, it's always a board giving problem, or have our challenges always constantly be? There are certain challenges that are specific to the time that we live in today. There are many challenges that have always been around. You talk about the issues of board giving, which was our most recent posting in New Jewish Philanthropy just two, three days ago that in order for an organization to succeed, people need to lead. That's what leadership is all about. In point of fact, my involvement and advancement in my own work, both as an organizational employee and then as a consultant and a consulting executive, that if there was no leadership, then there was no success. Now, you can look at any activity, whether it's in the nonprofit world, whether it's in the corporate world, whether it's in in the community world, in the philanthropic world. If somebody isn't articulating what the priorities are, if somebody isn't listening to their constituents, if somebody isn't taking those things and putting them together into a set of priorities and frameworks, there's nothing to follow. There's nobody to follow. So in order for an organization or an activity or a campaign or whatever it is to succeed, obviously leadership is important. And in an organizational framework, The board is the leadership committee, essentially, of the organization, so that if the board doesn't express its leadership and creates the opportunity in which it can say, follow me, or what I consider the golden words in fundraising, which are join me, that the venture will flounder and will likely not succeed. So, you know, at the end of the day, and leadership is expressed in many ways, but in the fundraising environment, you need to be able to do what you're asking others to do. Right. And I think part of that is cultural, right? So I think something like the Federation, they've really built in this, you know, super Sunday call-a-thon, you know, your volunteers and your donors come and sit in a room and they call other people and they are doing your fundraising. Whereas other organizations, 
I work in philanthropy for a North American organization. And that is absolutely 100% not the culture, right? They'll sit on committees, they'll give you their opinion on conferences and programs and things, but ask them to ask somebody else for money. And that's just not, you know, something that they're used to doing. Is there a difference between these like kind of smaller localized organizations and these North American kind of larger spread out organizations that have these different cultures that you found? Let's put the Federation world in context. The Federation world, yes, yeah, so they do the phonathons and the Super Sundays and all that. But that accounts for a small fraction of the monies that they raise. The massive preponderance of the monies that they raise are all raised, in a sense, the old-fashioned way. In personal meetings and in settings where relationships are leveraged and business and professional connections are put to test, and one individual asks another based on a whole set of circumstances that relate to that campaign or that relate to that activity. Today, in order to be able to achieve what they need to achieve, small organizations need to find their own way. They need to be able to understand that monies to do what it is that they do, whatever their mission happens to be, needs to come from their community. They can't sit and offer opinions and guidance and direction and assume that monies will be generated by a professional that's going to make calls to people they don't know or going to somehow drop from a proverbial sky. We counsel our clients all the time that things need to happen. Uh, Things don't just happen. They need to be done. It needs Mm -hmm. to be executed. And in today's day and age, where in a different way, perhaps, than things were done in the past, there is an increasing reliance, not just on relationship and connection, which has always been part of the important mix of fundraising, but also data and research. That data has become an inescapable platform that drives fundraising that our environment is hyper-competitive. There are many more organizations uh, joining the fray. Everybody's more innovative than the other. And so if you want to be able to access the funding that you need through the funders, whether individual or family or institutional, you need to be able to understand who you're talking to and you need to be able to know who they are and what they do, what they've done in the past, what their vision is for the future, and act accordingly. Mass mailing things to foundations is not going to work. You need to be able to understand the personality and culture, not just internally, but also externally, so that you're able to fit the trend and make a contact with a prospective funder or donor on their terms. While the basic principles of fundraising are the same today as they were 10 years ago and 20 years ago, a lot of the difference, in addition to the growing importance and centrality, as I said before, of data and research, is also the use of communication and how messaging becomes the central part, where in the old days when things were done by letter, by phone, and by fax, and even by email, the message could be adjusted you know, as you went. Today, with the nature of communication, that messaging moves at lightning speed, and somebody knows all about you before you pick up the phone. And you have to assume that they've checked you out. And so that on a certain level, you need to be able to control the information that goes out there, and control is a bad word. You have to be able to frame the, the information that goes out about you and your activity and your organization in such a way that by the time you pick up the phone and speak with that person and you know have coffee with that person or eat lunch, that the conversation has already begun. Mm-hmm. And they've checked you out and you've checked them out and you're working off of a platform of information that needs to be validated and needs to be translated into something concrete, but that there's something already operating and you're not starting from a blank slate. That's the major difference. And we'll get into some of the other in a minute because there are changes in, you know, there's transfer of wealth, there's changes in generational control of funds and so forth, which we'll talk about in a moment. But in terms of the basic tenets of fundraising and the use of tools, at the end of the day, if you want to raise a lot of money, you have to be able to meet with people individually. That's hard work, right? That's uh, doing that work, prepping for it. It's it's, like you said, it's just going to kind of happen. It's not going to happen. It's got to get done and it's got to get done by people. And on the downside, you know, you work in an environment in which mistakes are out there for everybody to see. So you can't make mistakes. But on the other hand, it enables you to move a project much faster than you would have 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. You know, kind of 
take hold of the tools that you have in terms of communication and data mining and donor research and so forth and put them to good use so that you can save the competitive fray. Well, even um, a, good, and, you know, a good CRM in which you have notes from your predecessors and predecessors and knowing, you know, how this person has been treated at your organization or you know, what experience they've had so far instead of being like, hi, you know, I'm new and I don't know you at all. And I have no information whatsoever. Like it's organization. I'd like to meet you. Maybe 20 years ago, that person would have said, oh, sure. You know, I'll, I'll take you under my wing. And, you know, when everything was done by the seat of the pants, well, there's no more seat of the pants anymore. There's an assumption of no one should walk into a meeting today and the person on the other side says, do you know who I am? Right. Or do you know what I do? And do you know what I think? You know, the answer needs to be yes. Mm-hmm. And they shouldn't even be in a position of having to ask that question. And that's the notion of what fundraising is today is very much like every other business. And one of the things that crops up in almost everything that I write is the notion of the philanthropic marketplace and that it is a marketplace today. It's not, you know, kind of cushy environment in which we do group work. It's a hard-nosed, hyper-competitive very fast paced arena in which there is no brand loyalty anymore. There is no sense of connection and history. It's all about achieving results. So you've noticed that change over the years in doing. Oh, absolutely. And a lot of it has been driven, as I hinted before, by the change in generations. You know, as the baby boomer generation, you know, the 60, 65, 55 and over will be generous begins to move into retirement, you know, they're still involved in the charitable world, but not in the way perhaps in leadership roles that they had in past right. years. And the emerging, you know, Generation X cohort is rising into positions of leadership. Those men and women who are between the ages of 35 and 55, you see a much different attitude. You see a much different set of priorities where the baby boomers perhaps were committed to the Jewish community out of a sense of obligation. They learned that from their parents, you know, the post-Holocaust generation, and they gave to the Jewish community, they gave to Israel before they gave to other people and, and other organizations. The Generation Xers who have amassed as a cohort more funds and greater wealth than their parents at an earlier age don't look at things that way. They look at giving to their synagogue or giving to their federation or giving to their Jewish organization or giving to something relating to Israel. And they're very philanthropic. It's not a matter of not giving. Mm -hmm. You see the numbers go up and up and up, and we'll see the numbers come out again for the past year in a few weeks. But they have no connection. They have no connection to, to history. Their connection is to achieving a result. You know, and I don't mean to make it sound, you know, cold and impersonal, but fundraising has become, as a result of that, the two phenomena coming together, the transition of wealth and where it used to be centered on one or two individuals. And now it's kind of diffuse over, you know, four or five children. Right. So decision-making is more diffuse and you have to be able to make it presentation and make a pitch in a different way. Number one, number two, this notion of a focus on results. That, well, and that, you see uh, that a lot with our with leadership as well, right? I talk absolutely. about you know millennial absolutely. organizations versus our legacy organizations, and mm-hmm. the organizations that have started in the last fifteen years tend to have younger people mm-hmm. at the helm and that think differently about the way that they're doing their work than some of our older institutions do. Right. And one of the things that I, you know, kind of passed by quickly a moment ago, but that is very, very much a part of, you know, kind of the upcoming organizations in the last five years or seven years or 10 years, you know, that they are focused on results and they're not focused on organizations. They're focused on an activity or on helping a certain cohort or on education for children or on buying blankets for something or ending forced migration, you know, or whatever the issue is that that organization has chosen as its mission. They're about results. They're not about organizational identity, you know, insofar as it enables them to raise money. But donors, donors are looking for those organizations that can achieve those results. So that if today they're giving to organization A and next year they see organization B doing it better, they're going to shift their money to organization B in a moment. The imperative is always to stay competitive and to stay practical and to really you know, achieve excellence in what you do and quantify what you do. 
the up and coming, the emerging leader today says, if I give you, you know, $100 or $1,000 or a million dollars, what's the demonstrable result that you can prove to me from that money? Which is a phenomenon that, you know, uh, people ask, but has not been a central question or as central question as it is today. Well, and that goes to the problem of raising operating dollars, right? And raising Absolutely. something for your you know, staff professional development and other things that you need to run a healthy organization. Mm-hmm. That's much harder to sell than the programs and projects and the results that you actually are able to achieve with your services, right? Right. You know, at the end of the day, it's all about the end user. You know, who is it that is benefiting from the money and how are you changing lives? Because that's the metric. If I give you that million dollars, how many people are going to be helped by that million dollars? How many people's lives are going to be improved, you know, within the context of what your organization does? So that prove to me that you're educating a thousand more children. Prove to me that you're feeding, you know, X amount more families. Prove to me that a hundred more school children in Israel are getting access to Jewish education and so forth and so on. It's all about, it's all about the ability to demonstrate results and to show that through transparency and open discussion that monies are being used appropriately. I'll just make one comment about that because it's something, again, that when you talk about 10 years ago, when you talk about 20 years ago, is a phenomenon that we see more and more. Donors are asking about business plans. Donors are asking about the need for transparency because- Plans, direction, vision. (laughs) Absolutely. And how those visions are going to be funded. And they want to know, and I'm not talking about stolen monies that are being stolen. That's not the question. The question is, if I give you this money, will it go for the purpose which was intended or will it kind of vaporize along the way? We've all heard stories about, you know, an organization that raises money for a particular project to build a building, to fund a project, you know, to fund a program, whatever it is. And, you know, it takes a couple of years for that thing, whatever it is, the building and the program to come about and the money sitting there, you know, so you shave a little off here, shave a little off there, you borrow against it. And all of a sudden, five years later, there's nothing left. And that's breaking a bond with a donor, number one. And it's also doing irreparable harm to an organization's reputation. And when it comes to that, the decision, when that 35 or 40 year old entrepreneur is making a decision about where to put his or her funds, that's going to be part of the equation. And the fact when somebody else gave you half a million dollars and you had nothing to show for it, I don't mean to sound hypercritical. It's, it's not. It's just <laughs> you know, these things happen. These yeah. things happen. And part of what we do with the organizations that we work with is enable them to understand the importance of accountability and the importance of good financial management and business planning. Right. So have you seen organizations, and you obviously don't have to name any names, but that have been able to shift their model from this kind of loyalty ingrained model to a results driven and kind of more captivating or engaging type model? We can go through organization by organization, but I think one area in which you're seeing some change is in the federation world. You you brought it up before, Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's a good model to stay with. There are a number of major federations that are still doing business the way they always have. And that's an institutional decision. They've chosen to do that and they see value in doing that. And, you know, I can't question their decision-making. I may think that it's out of step with the environment, with the marketplace around us, but, you know, I wasn't there in the room when they brought all that up. Mm -hmm. However, you see a number of other federations that are looking at the marketplace and saying, we need to move at the speed of the marketplace. We need to be able to look at the next generation and appeal to them on their own terms so that we are not going to automatically fund the things that we funded forever just because we funded them forever. We're going to look at new priorities. We're going to look at new ways of doing things. We're going to bring the donor and the end user closer together without undermining the functionality of federation. We're going to build better relationships between our federation and our donors at all levels, but particularly at the major gift level where most of those funds are raised. But at the same time, from the bottom up, you mentioned Super Sunday, to keep the relationship with the community so that the Federation has relevance. There are a number of federations that have taken on some serious changes Mm -hmm. and have succeeded. 
and they should be a model to their colleague federations around the country. Even just looking at the way that you grant your money, right? If your donors are demanding results from you, you have to then turn around and demand results from the people you're giving money to and have Absolutely. to say, oh, well, you've given us $5,000 for the last 15 years. You're going to keep giving us $5,000, right? We're like, well, no, like you actually have to show us what you do with that money and how that makes impact so that we can turn around and tell our donors who are giving that $5,000, this is you know what it's doing in the world. It goes on both ends of the process. When you're dealing with the donor, don't just approach a donor and say, well, last year you gave $5,000. This year, can you renew it and give 10% more? Just because we're the federation and we want it, but say that if you gave us $5,000 or $50,000 or $500,000, this is what the money is going to do. These are the actual results that it's going to achieve. Number one. Then on the other side of the process, where you have your funded organizations, that a number of federations are shifting from you know, kind of a traditional allocation process to an RFP process, where it's more competitive, where they have to demonstrate results, where traditional funding relationships are not necessarily the basis for the funding relationships of the future, so that you see the two sides, in a sense, you know, coming closer together. The need on the donor side to see the results and the impact of those results on their dollars on the organizational side to be able to meet the expectations of donors to show the impact that they as an organization, a community-based organization, are making on the lives of people. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Before turning to my conversation with Avram, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next podcast episode. Avital Ingbar is the president and CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Houston, who discusses with me the process of preparing for taking on this role, the unexpected challenge she faced after Hurricane Harvey, and what makes Houston such a unique community. Here's a clip from our upcoming conversation. How do we make sure we are inclusive, providing the services that we need so people of all ages can feel connected and part of the Jewish community? We're also thinking about multi-generational family philanthropy. How do we, within a city that has so many generations living here, keep the close connections? How do we build philanthropists for the future? There is a very vibrant young adult program that has really fostered great leaders for the future. We have to continue to look to that. And we want to look at how we provide services and opportunities for people outside the walls of established institutions. How do we get to all the geographic areas? A lot of the Jewish community here is moving to areas in West Houston, in Katy. Younger people are buying homes in the Heights and Montrose. And so how do we make sure that our leadership are representative of the community, that we are planning for the future and where the Jewish community will be and how people want to connect to their Jewish identity. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Avital in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Avram. So as you know, we have a variety of different people who listen to this program. Some are funding mm-hmm. professionals in mm-hmm. federations. <laughs> some are, you know, development professionals in smaller organizations. Some are at the top, some are at the bottom. Mm-hmm. When you kind of think about all the different things that you write and experiences that you have, what's the advice that you have for people who are on the ground in the field doing this work every day? Okay, so number one, what's been a thread that's run through our conversation over the last half hour, 40 minutes is be prepared. Don't make any assumptions. Wherever you are in the hierarchy of your organization, understand that in order to succeed, you need to understand what your project is, what it does, how it helps, and how it's understood out there in the donor community and how to present it to others. Don't be afraid of data. Don't be afraid of research. Embrace it. Because, you know, it's really the engine, in a sense, today that is driving philanthropy, that so many decisions, operating decisions, and even strategic decisions are being made based on data. Don't get me wrong. 
giving is still a passionate act. That at the end of the day, making a major gift is not like buying a car. When you buy a car, you want to pay the least money for the best car. Here, you want to be able to make the biggest impact and give the most that you possibly can. The way that decision is driven today is different than it was in the past. It's mm -hmm. not just with a slap on the back and a little bit of peer pressure. The personal touch and a you know, small dose of peer pressure you know, is still part of the mix, but it's based on the ability to demonstrate that if you give $100,000, that this is what's going to happen, and these are the people that are going to be impacted. Use technology, that if you're not using the technology at your disposal, the world will pass you by in an instant. Also understand the value and the utility of the technology that's at your disposal. Don't presume to run a major fundraising campaign by email. It doesn't work. Right. That the personal touch for a major project is still critically important. Don't say that we don't need a traditional you know, campaign leadership team because we can do it all electronically. If you approach somebody electronically, and I can tell you from experience, if somebody is capable of giving $100,000, the way to encourage them, they need to decide. You can't tell them to give $100,000. It needs to be their decision. But the way to get them there is to come and sit with them and to demonstrate to them you know, how that money will be used and how the life of the organization and the lives of people are going to be improved. If you send them an email to say, you know, others have given $100,000, maybe you should too, I think of one word that will come as a result of that, and that's probably delete. In today's environment, that's not going to work, but we come across it all the time. Yes, I agree. Time is the biggest commodity today. People are busy, and people are pulled in so many directions that attention that they could provide to philanthropic activities is shorter than mm -hmm. in the past. You don't have your quote-unquote professional volunteers like you used to, or right. people that could take off weeks and months from their professional life <laughs> to deal with philanthropy. It doesn't exist anymore. So you yeah. need to make it easy. You need to make it user-friendly. But at the same time, be able to use the tools, but also budget your time and attention in such a way that you're using the tools to a particular end. And the end always comes to the same place as it has traditionally. The time frame is shorter. The messaging is more important. It needs to be sharper and crisper and to the point and easily understood. You don't need a you know 20 color brochure anymore. You need something nice and clear and easy to put up on the website that you can tell somebody, take a look at our website and I'll be in your office next Tuesday at five. So that you want to shorten the time that it takes in order to get from point A to point B, but you're not shortening the effort and you're not shortening the tools that need to be implemented. Again, understand the power of data and the power of research to understand the importance of technology and how to use it in order to be able to function and succeed in today's environment. And third and most important, don't lose first principles. There are two reasons why people give, all right, at the end of the day, as they say. One is because of the impact that it has. You know, that has been something that we talked about for the last period of our conversation. But the other is that people give to people that relationships are important and building relationships are important and stewarding and cultivating and encouraging and nurturing relationships are important. Why? Number one, it'll achieve the short-term result or it'll create a better situation in which that short-term result can be accomplished. But number two, this is not a one and done. You're in the business of building stakeholders and building leaders and building capacity and building for a future. You're not reaching out to donor X or Y or Z because you need a lot of money right now today in order to achieve a particular goal. You're reaching out to them, yes, to achieve a particular goal between now and next week or next year or the year after that. But you also hope because of the challenge of brand loyalty, because of the way that the environment is working today and the pressures of the marketplace, that you need to be able to keep that person close. And the way to keep that person close is by giving them a reason to stay close and developing the relationship based on them and based on the priorities that are important to them and the way that they can relate to the organization so that there's always a reason to keep coming back. Yeah, so it goes back to that use of technology that I mentioned. And, you know, if you have a good database that you have this mm -hmm. information as to what they Absolutely. care about and what they connect with and what they've given to and those conversations and, 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 and this is, going is right. Great. 
And this is, you know, in a sense where the art and science collide to having the database of information, number one, comes from maintaining the relationship. So you have the traditional and the less traditional coming together to be able to kind of open the path for the future. And the database that you have is based on data. It's based on information that everybody else is mining. So, you know, now it needs to be done appropriately and it needs to be done with care and with respect. But at the same time, it's a rough world out there. And if you're not, you know, on your A game all the time and using information that is readily available to your benefit, you're always at a disadvantage. So bringing it back to you for a little bit, you've been doing this work for a while, so I'm sure there's some art and science that you've figured out. I'm sure you have a social life as well. So how do you keep it all balanced? Any tools that you utilize in your life to get everything done and still stay sane? (laughs) Well, it depends. (laughs) It depends on who you ask and how the balance is working out. My wife has been extremely supportive over the years and continues to be of the nature of my work. And we value our time together and our kids. And they've watched me and been a part of, you know, they're now young adults entering into their professional lives, but not young adults like teens, young adults like in their mid-20s. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> they've been part of this development over the course of the last two decades, two and a half decades. They're as much a part of kind of the rhythm of all this as the daily work. You know, one of the things that keeps me going forward is this notion that every day is a unique challenge. Two days are the same. You know, as you might imagine, I travel a fair amount. I travel a lot. There isn't typically a week in which I'm not going someplace, you know, on a plane, on a train or something else to go to another destination because, you know, so much of the business that we do while it's supported by technology is still based as we've talked on personal contact. So I spend a fair amount of time away from home. So I value the time that I am home. I also value the strength and resilience and knowledge and commitment and work ethic of my team. We're a team of seven people, myself included, and each one, we talk about our company as a one-stop shop, as a full-service operation that has the capability to address um, nearly every need of a not-for-profit organization looking to advance itself in some way, whether it's through fundraising, whether it's through leadership development, whether it's strategic direction, whether it's through business planning, or any mixture of the above. This is not something you know, that I can do by myself, nor something that would be appropriate for me to do by myself. Right. I need to bring around me people that oftentimes are you know, around certain things much smarter than I am and give them the ability to deal with the challenges in front of them so that we as a team can address the needs of the organizations that we work with. I find that as much as, you know, kind of understanding what the trends in the marketplace are, I see that as at least 50%, if not more, of the measure of our success over the years. Here we are, you know, 26 years later in various iterations as a success and a results business. I can think I'm a pretty smart guy. I'm, my wife always tells me I am, but, <laughs> but, uh, but I really do have to yield to the wisdom and the capabilities of others as well. And from every client engagement and every organization, large or small, that we work with, we learn something. You know, no two engagements are the same. There's no add water and mix. There's no formulaic approach. Every organization, you know, their project is tailored to their history and culture and personality. You know, we try to advance the organization, you know, within that personality, but you can't drop in a add water and mix from the outside and expect it to work. So we spend time, particularly in the beginning of every engagement, you know, kind of getting to the heads of our clients, understanding who they are, how they function, how they make decisions, how they think, so that we can kind of tap into that and enable them to advance and move forward. At the end of the day, that's the only way. We tell our clients, you know, as a board member of the Giving Institute and as a, as a member of the editorial review board of Giving USA, I see what's going on out there in the marketplace. I understand where things are going and the trends in the philanthropic arena. I see that clear as day. And so we try to understand it, stay ahead of the marketplace, keep current, 
but also understand that we have to you know, still make sure that best practices, best ethical practices, best practices still exist in everything that we do. We know what works. We know what works today. You know, we hopefully will be able to continue to, to make an impact on organizations and the people that they serve for many, many years to come. Great. So we've touched upon a lot of different topics in our conversation, trends in the community, your experience, things you've seen. Anything else that you feel like we haven't really touched upon that you'd like to mention about your work or trends in the environment we all work in? I'll just come back to some of the key points, and that is, you know, be vigilant. Never be complacent. Never believe that you got it all figured out, because that's when somebody else passes you by. The environment is competitive, but it's also supportive understand that there's a lot happening out there. There's a lot to learn. There are ways to learn it and, you know, find mentors, find friends, find people who can guide you. Um, you know, don't be afraid of asking for help and guidance and direction, even the most senior, you know, to the most junior. I always tell my team that the organizations that hire us, hire us because they're smart, because they know the gaps that they have and the capabilities that they need to develop. And, uh, so you need and a little guidance and a little help to see it. Absolutely. They can't see from the inside. Yeah, absolutely. Ab- it's not an expression of weakness, but an expression of strength. And so whether it's the colleagues in our client organizations or you know, out there in the not-for-profit world that determine your strengths, know where your strengths are and know where you need to get better and focus energies on that and you know, use the tools at your disposal and the probability of success goes up. And your donors and constituents will appreciate it. <laughs> No no doubt at all. No doubt at all. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us and giving your wisdom and experience and advice to our listening audience. Hopefully Mm -hmm. it gives people lots of things to think about as they go about doing their work. So really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. And I'll thank all of your listeners. In graduate school, it was drilled into us that fundraising is all about relationships. Many things that Avram talks about are the ways we create those relationships. I would say it's hard work, but really it's intentional work. Who is it that you're meeting with? What is their relationship to the organization? What are some personal interests you might be able to connect on? What information do you know about this person? And with all that quote unquote work behind you, it's about doing your best to connect with that person in a way that excites them about your work and empowers them to become a part of your organization. And not just in a financial contribution, but in their personal fulfillment and their connection to your organization. The other aspect he speaks about is around how you communicate your why. How you communicate the impact and result of your work. Are donors giving to your Israel-based organization just because they love Israel? Or because out of all the organizations that do work in Israel, you are the best at articulating the impact and success of your work? Being able to clearly quantify your work is important, and that impact makes a huge difference in your ability to bring donors along on your mission. This program has been funded in part by the Jim Joseph Foundation. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound, and our fiscal sponsor is Jewish Creativity International. You can find previous episodes, guest bios, podcast articles, how to start your own podcast, and more on our website. It's whoyouknowthepodcast.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. 